So, yeah, Dina emailed me, uh, what was it, yesterday, and said, uh, just a reminder about your lecture. What's your lecture's title? And I emailed her back. I said, what lecture? <laughs> and uh, I think there were some EKG changes. <laughs> so um, thanks for inviting me. Um, this, uh, I, I'm now, I've been at UCI now for 10 years, and as Rudkin will tell you, I'm now old enough that uh, I can be called a curmudgeon about certain things. And this is one of those topics that I'm considered curmudgeonly about up in the ICU. So uh, unfortunately, I've got uh, no corporate interest whatsoever. I'm not on anybody's payroll. Um, so uh, any money that I get comes purely through UCI. Um, so just by way of introduction, uh, I think as many of you know, there are numerous controversies regarding the timing, the volume, and the composition of fluid resuscitation. Today I'm really going to stick with the last part of it, the composition of the fluid resuscitation that we give our patients, and that's in shock and trauma. What we'll talk about today are isotonic crystalloid solutions that I think everybody is very well familiar with, the various colloid solutions that we have available to us, We'll go into a little bit about the history of this crystalloid-colloid battle, and I'll put that in very large air quotes. We'll talk about hypertonic solutions that we all have available to us, and then if we have time, uh, we'll go into the current status of blood substitutes. So a couple of historical tidbits. Uh, back in the late uh, 1700s, it was felt that death after traumatic injury was uh, largely related to circulating toxins, and bleeding the patient was considered to be the cure. That obviously didn't work out so well. In the early 1800s, the first successful human-to-human -human blood transfusion occurred. That was done by Blundell. Then they sort of took a step backwards in the 1870s and uh, dallied a little bit with intravenous human infusion of uh, milk from either cows or goats uh, with the uh, expected results. I don't think anybody survived that. Um, 1883 was when uh, Ringer described uh, his first uh, solution that ultimately became lactated Ringer solution. And uh, also uh, in that decade, uh, people realized that maybe perhaps normal saline might be a better replacement for milk. And then in the early 1900s, that's when we really started to see some modern physiologic experiments. These were mostly done in dogs uh, by George Cryle, who's actually a surgeon. Uh, and uh, Walter Cannon, who was a physiologist, largely around the same time. Cryle, interestingly enough, uh, the clamps, the little disposable clamps that come in all the suture laceration trays, that little regular-sized hemostat with a little curve on it, that is a Cryle clamp. So some more history. In the early uh, 1900s, uh, ABO uh, blood typing was described by Launstiner. Um, blood banking uh, became available in the uh, 1930s. Uh, cone in 1940 was the first to fractionate albumin, uh, stimulating interest in use of uh, um, uh, protein derivatives of human blood uh, as intravenous infusions. And then really uh, the next major development was in the late 80s um, when uh, people started experimenting with various blood substitutes, and we'll talk about those at the end. Uh, the, the first were these perfluorocarbon, or basically they're, they're sort of like refrigerator fluid. And, uh, oh, Christy, grab a seat. <laughs> Should I start? It? No. And uh, in the 1990s is when we started to see some of the modern uh, hemoglobin-based oxygen carriers, or HBOCs. So um, these are some uh, little points that come up on exams every now and then. So the three basic isotonic crystalloid solutions that we see both in the emergency department on the floors and in the ICU are going to be 0.9% normal saline, which as you look at the electrolyte composition is really not so normal after all. Uh, 154 milliequivalents of sodium and chloride, really not reflective of what 
is uh, typical in the human body. Lactated ringer is a bit more physiologic with a little bit of potassium, calcium, and lactate uh, thrown in there, and that tends to be our first line. Crystalloid resuscitant in uh, trauma patients. Plasmolite, do you guys use plasmolite in the ED at all? Hardly ever, right? We hardly ever use it up in the ICU. It's probably the most physiologic of all. We use it in the operating room periodically. It's a tad bit more expensive, but also a very good isotonic crystalloid solution. So that's the, the basic composition there. <coughs> so what about colloids? The, the prototypical colloid solution is, as you know, is albumin. It's a large polypeptide with a molecular weight of about 66 kilodaltons. In this country, it's available in two uh, concentrations commercially. The most common is 5% human albumin. The other is 25% human albumin. That's also called salt-poor albumin or SPA. And uh, I don't know um, how often that's used in the emergency department in resuscitating patients. It is used up in the ICU, and we'll go into a little, that in a little bit. Um, this, this product is heat-treated. It's essentially pasteurized. There's no viral risk to it. It does have some allergic reactions that are associated because it is a protein, so you can have an allergy to it. Now, how about non-protein colloid solutions? These are synthetic colloids. There are uh, several dozen of these uh, that are out there in the world. The, the three main ones that are available in this country are the HETA starches, or HES. Uh, that's the way they're abbreviated. And the commercial ones that we see here are Hespan and Hexden. Those are the older ones that are still in use today. And then there's a newer one called Voluven that uh, our operating room and our anesthesiologists are starting to develop some experience with, and I'll talk about those. These are synthetic colloids. Basically, it's a suspension of amylopectin molecules in isotonic saline. Much heavier in terms of molecular weight. The average for these uh, solutions uh, is uh, 130 to 670 kilodaltons, so about somewhere up to maybe 10 times as uh, uh, heavy in terms of molecular weight. They do have a slightly higher colloid oncotic pr pressure as compared to 5% albumin. They're cleaved by amylase, and they can result in a hyperamylasemia. It's just something to be aware of when you administer these fluids to patients that they can have hyperamylasemia afterwards that you would detect on uh, lab tests. And um, going into a level of detail that probably nobody really wants to know, except for the organic chemistry majors, but these are described. These solutions are all described by their molecular weight, the concentration of the amylopectin in the normal saline, and then the degree of molar substitution of the hydroxyethyl units for glucose in the ratio of C2 to C6, or in the position of C2 to C6. Hespan, six, these are both, they're all 6% solutions. Uh, you can see the, the uh, molecular weight. Um, and then Voluven is a tetrastarch. It's actually not a, a, um, uh, a head of starch, and um, it's got a slightly lower molecular weight. The thought is that it'll have a better side effect profile, and we'll go into that in a little bit, too. So those are the synthetic colloids. So those are sort of the players. So what are the advantages and disadvantages to each? Colloid solutions as a group, and I'm now putting everything in there, the, synthet the synthetics and the uh, protein colloids like albumin. The big theoretical advantage is something called colloid oncotic pressure, right? Everybody's heard of this. The idea is that starling forces will draw fluid into the vascular space. When you're giving somebody fluid resuscitation, you want the fluid that you're giving in the vein to stay in the cardiovascular system and not drift out into the interstitium. The idea is you can get a more rapid correction of hypovolemia. You can use a much lower volume of infusate. You've got these cute little bottles there. They're actually probably about life size on that screen, as opposed to big bags and liters of saline. There are disadvantages um, in terms of very significant cost as compared to other solutions. There are periodic um, shortages in availability, and uh, side effects are of concern. <coughs> so what about the advantages of crystalloids? 
So they're readily available. They're dirt cheap. They've got a favorable side effect profile, and they've cer they certainly are tried and true. They've been out there for uh, uh, over 100 years. Disadvantages, large volume, volume of infusate, really not such a big deal when you can just go to the cabinet in the emergency department and store bags of the stuff, but um, is a big deal if you're thinking about um, military usage and what you have to carry on your back or store in a forward fighting unit. Um, because it's a larger volume of infusate, it takes a longer time to get that into the human. Um, they do uh, result in electrolyte and pH disturbances. You think about what's in normal saline, right? 154 milliequivalents of chloride, right? I mean, you don't have that many milliequivalents of chloride uh, per liter in your blood right now. It's probably around 100 or so. So the more normal saline you give somebody, the more electrolyte disturbances you can have in the form of a hyperchloremic uh, metabolic acidosis. And there are pro-inflammatory effects that are pretty well described, particularly with lactated ringers infusion, where just giving these clear watery fluids with some salts in them can actually cause neutrophil demargination and they may actually contribute to multi-organ dysfunction, ARDS, and potentially even death in animal studies. So this graph is sort of the one to kind of focus on, just going, thinking about what the advantages and disadvantages are. You really want to be over here when you're giving to the right side, to your left side of the screen, my right side of the screen, let me face this way. Um, you want to be expanding your plasma volume. You don't want to be expanding the interstitial volume. The more, the more of that you do, the more your patient looks like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Not, not really desirable. So you can see why we don't give people D5 water. Right? You give them water, and it just all comes out into the interstitium. You never hear of somebody getting a bolus of D5W. Right? It all comes out into the interstitium. Useless is a resuscitative fluid. But even look at saline. Right? I mean, it's still distributed probably you know, in the 75% range. This is over time. It comes out into the interstitium. So it's okay, but it's certainly not great. Um, <clears throat> and that, by the way, is um, where we get this concept of a three-to-one resuscitation. So if somebody bleeds out a liter, we say you've got to give them three liters of normal saline to make it up. That's where this comes from. These are from animal studies. And then if you look at uh, both albumin and this is HETA starch here, HESPAN, uh, they distribute about 50-50. And, and this is in healthy volunteers. When you administer them intravenously, they'll distribute about 50-50 in the interstitium and in the uh, um, intravascular space. So certainly better in terms of distribution. So that's the proposed advantage of using a colloid resuscitation. Everybody with me so far? Anybody falls asleep, let me know. Rudd, can you pea shoot him or something? All right, but now what's the data? I mean, this is all theory, but we've got to actually come. Sometimes the theory doesn't necessarily mesh with what the data are. And what you really have to be asking yourself is, are these, are these all safe? Do they, are, they, are they comparable in terms of safety profiles? And are they efficacious in terms of meaningful endpoints like mortality, length of stay, ICU length of stay, ventilator days, incidence of multi-organ dysfunction, whatever endpoint you want to pick, but pick something meaningful. And then also cost. I mean, we really can't ignore cost and cost effectiveness in 2012. So this really, this is a, a, um, a meta-analysis that appeared in British Medical Journal in uh, 1998. And this was sort of the beginning of the real battle of crystalloid versus colloid. Right, multiple studies had been done before, most of them retrospective, a couple small prospective studies, um, but nothing particularly compelling looking at crystalloids versus colloids in terms of resuscitation of hypovolemia. 
So this was a meta-analysis of the 24 randomized controlled trials that were out there. Still, 24 trials, they only had 1,419 patients total, so we're not talking about huge numbers of patients, and they were looking at patients with hypovolemia, burns, and hypoproteinemic states. So sort of a, a, a heterogeneous group of patients. And what they found was something interesting, that um, albumin administration in each one of those groups increased the relative risk of death in a variable way, but overall their conclusion was that for every 17 critically ill patients that you treated with albumin, you killed one. This was relatively stunning to all the people that were manufacturing albumin because they're putting out this expensive product, and as it turns out, it may be associated with a higher death rate. So that kind of pissed off the people at the Plasma Protein Therapeutics Association, the company that put, at least in this country, um, manufactures the uh, albumin fractions. So they hired a couple of lackeys, I'm sorry, scientists, and um, they put out their own meta-analysis, which actually re-massaged massaged the data from several of the studies that were in the uh, um, prior uh, one from uh, British Medical Journal. And in their meta-analysis, you know, they basically said their meta-analysis is better than, our meta-analysis is better than yours, and they found that there was no significant difference between an albumin resuscitation and a, a crystalloid resuscitation, and their conclusion in quotes was the findings supported the safety of albumin. They were sort of on the defense at this point. So now the gloves are off, basically. One, one big meta-analysis says it's dangerous and you're killing people. One meta-analysis says everything's hunky-dory. Notice nobody's addressing cost right now. It's really just safety. So that really set the stage for what most of us consider to be the defining study of the decade in terms of trying to answer this question. Has everybody heard of this study, the SAFE study? Is, is anybody familiar with this? I know Rudkin is. This, this really is a good lesson in, in how to conduct a very high-quality, randomized, controlled trial. And, of course, it wasn't done in the United States because you could never get this by an IRB here, and you'd never get anybody to fund it. So this was SAFE, which was saline versus albumin fluid evaluation. This was actually in part funded by the, um, the equivalent organ in Australia and New Zealand that manufactures these products because they wanted to show that, uh, that albumin was um, at least as good, if not better, as compared to saline. Multicenter, double-blind, randomized controls, controlled trial of normal saline versus 4% human albumin. Those of you that have been paying attention notice that, that is a different percentage of albumin as compared to what we use. We use 5%. But for the you know, so you, you, you can make a meaningful um, association, but it is a different commercial product. 16 ICUs across Australia and New Zealand, almost 7,000 patients, mixed medical surgical population. And they excluded cardiac surgery, liver transplant patients, and burns because those patients seem to have certain indications for uh, giving um, uh, a colloid resuscitation, and they felt that they were going to end up getting excluded from the trial anyway because folks were not going to want to enroll them. Now, you might be wondering, how exactly do you do a blinded study of a fluid that looks like beer compared to a fluid that looks like water. And they actually tested out these little boxes that have a shaded window and then these green tinted IV tubes. And they, they actually went to great lengths to test this blinding to make sure that it was they could truly randomize people and blind all the observers. And as it turned out, when they administered 100 patients, they set up these, set up these um, administration uh, sets and um, nobody could tell the difference. It was a coin toss, basically. And they tested it out before they embarked on the study. So that's how they did it. 
And um, their primary endpoint was 28-day mortality. And look, they're the same. No difference in 28-day mortality based on whether or not you were getting saline or albumin. They had some secondary endpoints. Once again, we talked about 28-day mortality. There's no difference in new organ failure, no difference in hospital length of stay or ICU length of stay, ventilator days, days of dialysis. And they, their conclusion was albumin safe and clinically equivalent to saline. Well, whoop-de-doo, right? I mean, so they're, they're equivalent. Fantastic. What do you do with that? Well, <clears throat> in 2011... This is now a follow-up. This is from the Cochrane database. Is everybody familiar with the, the Cochrane Library and Cochrane database of meta-analyses? So these tend to be the, you always have to be a little cautious when you're looking at meta-analyses because there can be certain um, observational artifacts when you do this sort of um, analysis. These are considered to be the best done. They're the reference standard. And it's actually a good way when you're just sort of trying, you know, when you're wondering whether or not one thing is better than another in one of these battles, if you go to the Cochrane database and you just look, the chances are they've done a meta-analysis. And they tend to redo these over a you know, five- or six-year period. So this is the most recent one. And um, what the, way they, the way they work these is something that's called a forest plot. So the line down the middle is basically equivalence. And then you can't really read it, but um, on the, your left side of the screen, that would be um, findings favoring colloid. And then on the other side would be findings favoring crystalloid. And they list all the different studies. And I just have them organized by what fluid they were giving as a colloid. But you can see that the bottom line right down here, when you pull them all together in their meta-analysis, is it's essentially equivalent, but that little dot there, if you look at it really, really closely, if I didn't have all these JPEG artifacts and whatnot, it actually just is sort of tipped on the side of favoring crystalloids rather than colloids. <coughs> so their conclusions were, and again, this is very recent, last year. There's no evidence from randomized controlled trials that resuscitation with colloids reduces the risk of death. And it's hard to see how their continued use, that's their colloid use, in these patients can be justified outside the context of randomized controlled trials. So I think it, it's pretty clear, at least to me, that colloids are not superior to crystalloids, but is it possible that colloids could be dangerous? So let's look at some other um, evidence here. So the SAFE investigators actually published about seven years later, or sorry, uh, four years later, a subset analysis of the trauma patients that received albumin. And they'd made the observation in the original study that trauma patients receiving albumin had a, higher, had a trend towards a higher mortality rate, but it was only in the patients with traumatic brain injury. And the, the uh, patients with severe traumatic brain injuries did worse when they received albumin as compared to the patients with moderate traumatic brain injuries. So they looked, they did a detailed analysis of all the patients with traumatic brain injury. And you can actually see that the survival curves of 28 days separate pretty dramatically there. So this is why we feel very strongly about not resuscitating brain injured patients with albumin. And we do see this from time to time. It's after the patients leave the emergency department. Somebody comes in, they crash their car, they've got a traumatic brain injury and a hemothorax and a pelvic fracture, and they go up to the OR for a hemicraniectomy. And then somebody is not paying attention in the, usually on the other side of the drapes, not the surgeon's side of the drapes, starts administering albumin. And we get a little spastic about that because you're, we're probably killing people by doing it. <coughs> so what about synthetic colloids? We've talked about albumin potentially being harmful in certain populations. What about the synthetic colloids? So head of starch is associated with a whole number of side effects. 
pruritus, which is very, very common, and it's dose-dependent. Coagulopathy, same thing. Renal dysfunction is um, uh, in a dose-dependent fashion, and there are limits to the amount of synthetic colloid that you can give to a patient in a day. Um, and then certain anaphylactoid reactions. The hopes for a better side effect profile with the newer synthetic colloids, such as Voluven, which just came on formula here probably about a year ago or so. You guys have any experience with Voluven in the ER? Have you, have you guys uh, used it at all? So um, this is an, uh, another study relatively recent. You can see I'm trying to pick studies from uh, reputable journals. I'm not looking in crap journals like Journal of Trauma here. This is New England Journal uh, of Medicine. Most of you have probably heard of that one. This is called the Vizep study. This is a it's sort of a complicated study, but basically they did find it was a um, they were looking at intensive insulin therapy and combined with a starch resuscitation. This is um, uh, um, across the Atlantic Ocean. It's not a starch that we have here, but the administration of their synthetic colloid, which is 10% penistarch, was actually associated with significantly higher rates of renal failure and the need for dialysis. These were quite significant. And you can see that um, they actually had a higher mortality rate in patients who were getting their head, their, um, it's actually pentastarch, I shouldn't have put the hydroxyethyl. And the study was actually stopped early due to safety concerns. Their, author, their conclusion was fluid resuscitation with 10% starch is harmful in patients with severe sepsis. All right, so just uh, kind of shifting gears for a second. So this, is, this, was a, a, um, this was done by the lead author of the SAFE study. This was a one-day observational study of practice patterns in the world. It was basically just a questionnaire. How do, you, how do you resuscitate your patients? So you can sort of see in the United States here, we're actually pretty rational, at least according to me. So blue is crystalloid, the yellow is colloid, and red is blood. So you can see we give people, we resuscitate people with a fair amount of crystalloid, and then we use blood, and then not so much colloid. And you can see across the pond in Great Britain, look at all the colloid they use. It's like, it's like pouring out of the taps there. And then interestingly enough, Australia and New Zealand, Australia's over here, New Zealand's somewhere here. Those guys put out the best study out there, and even they practice opposite of one another. There's been some interest in the, in the use of colloid resuscitation in septic states, both in early sepsis and severe sepsis. Um, one of the, I didn't show a slide, but in the SAFE study, the other subset analysis um, was based on an observation of a trend towards improved, so not statistically significant, but a trend towards improved survival in sepsis in patients who received albumin as, a pair, as compared to crystalloids. That's in contradistinction to the brain injury patient. The brain injury patient did worse with albumin, or trended towards worse. The uh, um, septic patients trended towards doing a little bit better. Just the ICU. <laughs> They're probably wanting, they're, they're going to tell me they, somebody gave somebody albumin and they want to fess up <laughs> and think I'm joking. <laughs> so, um, so that was one study, and actually that's the study that they have in the little gray box in the center where you can see that it to the, to the left of the line of equality on that forest plot, the SAFE study showed that there was this trend, although the error bars did cross the, the line of equality. So this was a non-statistically significant trend, but enough to be interesting to people. So there are several studies that actually um, uh, show a benefit of colloid resuscitation, particularly albumin and sepsis. And that 
It's not really clear why that is. The albumin does have an antioxidant effect. It does uh, scavenge free radicals, so it's possible that it's related not so much to the, the choice of the resuscitative fluid, but just another characteristic of it, this free radical scavenging effect. But there was a reduced mortality rate associated with albumin in this meta-analysis that was published in Critical Care Medicine last year. So there are a couple of ongoing studies that it's probably worth um, people being aware of. When there's this number of ongoing studies, I think there's still a lot of unanswered questions here. So the PRECISE trial is one that's going on by the Canadian, that's uh, being put on by the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group. That's probably, I'd put them on a par with the uh, Australia and New Zealand group in terms of the quality of critical care studies that come out of there. Um, Albios is a study that's looking at albumin and severe sepsis. This one's, er, the, so the PRECISE trial up on top, that's an early septic shock. The Albios trial, that's centered in Italy, but it's going to go across Europe. That's looking at um, severe albumin resuscitation and severe sepsis. The Australia-New Zealand group is now looking at crystalloid versus, they're doing the same trial as a safe study, but with synthetic colloids. Um, how about albumin and acute stroke? Anybody have any experience with using albumin in stroke? There's actually some interesting data to suggest that stroke patients who get resuscitated with protein colloids may actually have an improved mortality rate. Again, it's an unanswered question. There's a study that's coming out of University of Maryland uh, that's uh, recruiting patients right now. And then this other trial from Denmark, the 6S trial, again looking at uh, a, a crystalloid solution ringers acetate versus hydroxyethyl starch. All right, so let's get down to dollars and cents. All right, this is the whole other part of this, right? Because what I've shown you so far is that at best, crystalloids and colloids are probably more or less equivalent, maybe with some little tweaks here or there, but certainly not anything overwhelmingly favoring one over the other. But these are actually current costs. This is from uh, May of... Um, this year, looking at current costs, these are not patient charges, this is what we pay for these medications or liquids, right? So normal saline, cheapo, 65 cents a liter, right? Lactated ringers, 81 cents. Plasmolite, a little bit more expensive, but still pretty cheap. Even hypertonic saline, which we use periodically in the emergency department for head injured patients, buck 13. Look at the albumins. These are actually pretty low right now. They go up to about 45 or 50 bucks, both 5% and 25% albumin. All of a sudden, we're talking about pretty pricey. And then the, uh, the head of starches, Hespan, that's the older one, relatively cheap at 11 bucks a bag, but still a lot, I mean, an order of magnitude more expensive than crystalloids. And um, Voluven, the newer one, I mean, at 50 bucks, that's starting to get pretty darn pricey. <coughs> so let's just go over some of the, uh, these are at least, you know, my personal opinions based on data. So should we be using colloid resuscitation for hemorrhagic shock and trauma? I think the answer there is clearly no. Traumatic brain injury, definitely not because it kills people, so let's not use it there. Routine treatment of hypovolemia in the ICU. So we're constantly doing this. When you guys rotate up in the ICU, we're constantly giving people volume, and you will very rarely see us using colloid, um, at least intentionally, unless somebody sneaks it in underneath the radar, um, because for these reasons. Routine use in the operating room, again, likely not. Um, to decrease crystalloid use, this is one that I hear in the operating room all the time. So we have somebody who's having a big operation, they've bled three or four liters, and the anesthesiologist has given eight liters of crystalloid, and, they say, and they've given some blood, and they say they want to decrease the amount of normal saline they're giving them, so they're going to give them some albumin. Does that make any sense? Not really. You're going to decrease the amount of the cheap, effective fluid you're giving them to give them something that's more expensive and doesn't make them any better. Irrational. What about cirrhosis with ascites? You guys see these patients in the emergency room. Somebody comes in with uh, decompensated uh, hepatic failure and ascites. 
Um, albumin actually probably is an effective resuscitative fluid. Why? Why would we rather use albumin than, um, and particularly salt-poor albumin, there's a hint, why would we rather use albumin than uh, normal saline? Renin-angiotensin system is hyperactivated in these patients, right? So the more salt and water that you give them, the more ascites they make. So they do tend to do better with a small volume resuscitated, resuscitation with salt-poor albumin and then a potassium-sparing diuretic like aldactone to help get rid of some of the extra volume. Sepsis, I'd say, is still unproven, but certainly intriguing, as is resuscitation in patients with acute strokes. I just don't think there's enough data to support use yet. All right, switching gears for a second, hypertonic resuscitation. So there are certain disadvantages to using large volumes of isotonic crystalloid, right? First, we talked about the large volumes that it requires. You've got to give three to one for, if you're talking about hypovolemic shock from blood loss, you've got to give three to one saline or lactated ringers just to restore your intravascular volume. You've got to, if you're talking about um, carrying all this stuff in an ambulance rig or, you know, even worse, bringing it out into an austere environment or in the military, it's a lot of stuff to carry. We talked a little bit before about the, um, the pro-inflammatory effects of um, crystalloids, particularly lactated ringers, that there is this uh, neutrophil priming effect. They, um, uh, um, the uh, neutrophils adhere to the capillary wall and they tend to um, demarginate. And this may really contribute to SIRS and multi-organ dysfunction later on down the road. So these people could be dying of the inflammatory process at a month. So you don't tend to make the association early on between what you gave them in the emergency department or in, their, in the operating room with what's going on later on down the road. <coughs> so there are a bunch of different hypertonic fluids that are out there. The common ones that you may see, at least at UCI, we use 3% normal saline, right? Normal, normal saline is 0.9%. The other ones that are out there are even more concentrated. There's 7.5% normal saline and 10% normal saline with or without dextran 70. So these are called HS for hypertonic saline or HSD, hypertonic saline dextran. The advantage there is they can be given um, with a smaller volume of, infusi of an infusate, 4 cc's per kilogram. You think about what you'd give somebody, you know, a 70 kilogram male, the average 70 kilogram male, you're going to give 30 cc's per kilo or something like that by the time you're done with your initial resuscitation. They uh, are associated with a more rapid hemodynamic response. They're, interestingly enough, the hypertonic fluids tend to seem to attenuate this um, oxidative burst that may be associated with isotonic crystalloids. So they may have a, an anti-inflammatory effect that could be beneficial, at least in animal studies. They talk about improved microcirculatory flow and some rheologic characteristics that are associated with hypertonic saline, and we do use them to decrease ICP. It, you'd consider that an alternative or maybe an, even an adjunct to giving mannitol to a brain-injured patient. This is when you'll see us typically giving a hypertonic saline bolus in the ED as somebody with a severe traumatic brain injury, maybe with a blown pupil, and um, particularly somebody who... Uh, may have a marginal blood pressure, other signs of impaired perfusion, where we're cautious about giving mannitol because we don't want to give a diuretic and make them drop their blood pressure. We might give a bolus of hypertonic saline, which will have the same beneficial effect in terms of ICP, but not necessarily cause hypotension by making somebody pee out extra volume like mannitol would. 
There are multiple animal studies that demonstrate all these positive immunomodulatory effects. Um, they're, the hypertonic uh, solutions are considered to be very safe. You just do have to monitor people's electrolytes quite often. So when patients exit the emergency department or the operating room, they end up in the ICU, they're getting their electrolytes monitored usually every four or six hours, depending on the rate that a hypertonic solution is running. There's variable survival benefit in human studies. and. Um, uh, one study that our former chair, Dave Hoyt, was involved in was a pre-hospital study that's actually subsequently been terminated just due to a, a non-positive effect, um, was uh, administering these agents out in an ambulance rather using them as opposed to normal saline. That was the, um, it's called the Rock Study Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium. So that's sort of hypertonic in a nutshell. Um, switching gears again just to go through uh, what the current status of blood substitutes is. You think about the way we resuscitate people, uh, even in 2012, it makes no sense whatsoever. Somebody comes in with a gunshot wound to the aorta, they bled out five liters, their, whole, their entire blood volume. We pump them up with some cold crystalloid, we probably make them worse. We continue to resuscitate them when they get to the hospital with 50 units of packed red blood cells while the stuff's flowing out on the floor, right? And then they get all, all sorts of other complications related to the blood transfusion, like Transfusion, transfusion related acute lung injury, trolley, um, <coughs> allergic reactions, we waste the blood product. You think about it, you know, we're hanging an expensive product and it ends up all over the floor. And we finally get surgical control of the bleeding and um, then we've used up 60 or 70 units of blood. It would actually make a lot more sense if while the patient's bleeding or until you get surgical control or angiographic control, if we could give them something that wasn't human blood, that wasn't so scarce, but kept the person alive, get surgical control, and then go ahead and just give them a couple of units of blood to kind of fill up the tank again. <clears throat> so some characteristics of the ideal blood substitute. It would be disease-free. It would have universal ABO compatibility. It would have an O2 carrying capacity that was similar to uh, whole human blood. It would have a relatively long half-life um, in vivo, so it doesn't get all digested up very quickly. It would have a long shelf life, um, so that you didn't have to keep turning over the product. And ideally, you wouldn't have to put it in a refrigerator or a freezer. So I think everybody in the room knows that such a beast does not exist, at least as of right now. But there has been a lot of research. So the two main types of blood substitutes that have um, been out there in the last 20 years or so are...